Hey everybody, it's Matthew. This is just a quick bonus episode to celebrate Brian's birthday. Today is the birthday of Brian Platzer, cosmopolitan Brooklyn sex novelist and regular on Slee Ricketts. I, uh, I, I gave Brian the day off, but I feel bad that I, I may have deprived him of a uh, the, the chance to spend his birthday doing what he loves best, which is, of course, uh, pretending to get mad while complaining about strangers. Uh, anyway, I, I'm sorry, Brian, and uh, you're welcome. Uh, happy birthday, sir. What I've got for all of you listeners today is an episode Brian and I recorded a couple of weeks ago. It, it starts with uh, Brian giving me a basketball ethics quiz, which was more interesting than I expected it to be, uh, knowing almost nothing about basketball. But most of our conversation ended up being about marriage. It's, I will say it is, it is as dumb as usual, but slightly more serious at times, I think. I I also want to say for, on Brian's behalf, uh, and my own, that we, we both are very happily married to, uh, brilliant, beautiful, talented women, uh, whom we we respect and love and have appropriate uh, sexual feelings for, and uh, uh, hope this doesn't cause any major crisis uh, in either of our lives, especially not on Brian's birthday. So I uh, hope you all enjoy this. <laughs> so many bad decisions. Um, let's get to that right now. She's great. Just don't tell Tracy O'Day if she, uh, meaning your wife, ever wants to please you sexually, because apparently that <laughs> that infuriates Tracy. There's one thing that poet doesn't like is when a woman yeah. is interested in pleasing uh, her sexual partner. Ooh, don't get uh, her started. I'll tell you what, though. Female Sleeve Rickets listeners love a Tracy O'Day interview. I I do as well. Yeah. Tracy O'Day is a, is a wonderful, a wonderful uh, interviewer. I just... Um, I, I think you that, just that wouldn't would, want to be a fictional female character pleasing a man in her presence. I think that's the kindest way for me to put it. Yeah, no, she does not have patience for uh, fictional female characters who like to please their sexual male partners. There's what a, if they what if they did it resentfully? What if they took no pleasure in it themselves, but they did it out of well, that probably wouldn't be a great idea. I think that would make her even angrier. I, th- I think that you're getting you're getting to the absolute opposite of the the heart of the matter. I, I actually so. so you you did a you did a, a little beat on uh on poetry news you know the other yeah, episode yeah, yeah. and yeah. I thought that you should be like ba 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 poetry news you know like something like that I um, should pull that audio and use that the one I just did yeah <laughs> no I recommend you don't you don't pull that audio it's not not good audio but I wanted to tell you the story the completely true uh, story of the Brooklyn Nets basketball team okay. and I want you to weigh in. Um, on the morality of each episode okay. here that I'm about to tell you right. um, from a non-sports fan perspective, because okay. I I am an NBA fan. I, I like baseball and football, et cetera. I also live in Brooklyn. I have a, my kids are emotionally invested in this Brooklyn Nets team. Okay. Um, they are, are they the big 
the big New York basketball. They're not the no. big New York basketball. So, team. so the New York Knickerbockers, the Knicks, are okay. the big New York basketball team. Right. The New Jersey Nets for a long time were like a sad New Jersey team that you could be proud of rooting for if you were from New Jersey as like a not even the younger sibling, but right. like the distant cousin to the sibling. Or okay, and then they moved to Brooklyn for financial reasons, and with that move, they um, they hired a really wonderful general manager named Sean Marks, and they're backed by billions of dollars. And a few years ago, there was a, a an especially um, exciting free agent class. Do you understand that concept, or shall I explain? Free agent class. This is not so like each a year class. a certain number of best players in the league are up for free agency, meaning their contracts with their teams are over. Oh, and because okay. contracts are of of are of uh, various lengths of time, you get a year as we had a couple of years ago where two of the best players in the NBA were going to be free agents simultaneously. And because all of these players grew up playing with each other um, in AAU leagues where people um, were the best players on their local teams, their uh, school teams or travel teams from around the country, they would get together and play in these AAU tournaments, high school kids. And that was a way for college scouts to see the best players and they all competed among one another, but that made them friends because they spent a lot of time hanging out playing these big deal basketball leagues. So two of the the players um, in this free agent class a couple of years ago are named uh, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Okay, yeah, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving decided to team up and play on the same team. And a lot of uh, teams wanted to be the team that those two players would go to together. They announced in advance that they were going to go together. No, because that's tampering illegal, but oh, everyone knew it was true. Okay. So a couple of things. One, Kevin Durant is one of the top three basketball players in the world. Right now, he's probably the best basketball player in the world. He, as a rookie, played for um, first the Seattle Seattle Supersonics, and then the Supersonics closed down shop, and they moved to Oklahoma City. And he, he had the beginning of his career at the Oklahoma City team, where he did well, but he never uh, won an NBA championship. He then decided to go to the team that had previously won the NBA championship in order to win a championship himself. And that team was sort of a a superstar team with the best two shooters in the history of the NBA and a really wonderful team. So first, how do you feel about that decision? A professional basketball player, uh, one of the best in the world, who hasn't won a championship, right. deciding to go play with the team that had beat him the year before in order to try to win a championship. Because they were good players on that team. And he, and he was thought it would player, be fun but... to play with the good players and he thought he might be able to win a championship and that was important to him. That seems fine, right? Because you're right. So everybody knows win, that the opposite win games, is true. Right. right. Oh, everybody so everyone knows, knows that's true. Everyone knows that, that so that's that's wrong answer number one. So he is what? universally reviled for having made that decision. <laughs> we we loathe this man who instead of doing it on his own or with his own team, went and joined the team who beat him. But um, hadn't he already switched teams? For a championship. No, his team moved. But regardless, yes, he, he he's, a, he's an adult play, who decided. Do players, like, do players he, usually stay with one team their whole career? No, no, highly unusual. So they move around all the time. Right. Right, absolutely. And sometimes of their will, and sometimes because people trade them or they get fired or whatever. Yes, yes. So yes. then they just want to win games because they're yes, exactly. Players. 
So, so, so that was what I assumed you would say, and that was wrong answer number one. So, <laughs> yeah. and we hate we hated Kevin Durant okay. when he did that. Well, it worked out for him; he won a championship, and he felt so he was right, very good about himself. <laughs> um, okay. And then he decided that um, he wanted to, you know, really do it on his own this time because I think he took so much shit for doing it with with the previous championship. And the way there were two it, other very good players on that team, exactly. Okay. And the way he he wanted to do it on his own was to join up with Kyrie Irving, who had won a championship previously with LeBron James and come to a different team. But Kyrie Irving is also a very good player, right? Yeah, that's where it's um, there, there's a little bit of uh, cognitive dissonance when it comes to why we're supposed to hate him for joining a good team, but not hate him for creating a new good team with a guy. It's This would be his own team. It would be his, his new, a, a new adventure for a team for that, and, and before, that before Irving and Durant arrived there, this was not a great team. But then exactly. when they got there, the two of them made it be a great team. Exactly. So how do you feel about that? That's also fine, right? Because <laughs> right. they, they didn't, I mean, they like, they, yeah, because it's the same thing with a different, with a slightly different angle on it. Yeah, yeah. so that's the right answer. So, so okay. we were all fine with that. So everybody, <laughs> everybody in basketball viewing public was fine with that. Um, but then towards the end of um, last season, or the middle of last season, mm-hmm. another one of the best five basketball players in the world, whose name is James Harden, mm-hmm. he decided he no longer wanted to be on the team where he was the best player in the world, mm-hmm. best player on his team, and he. Um, got really moody about it because he had to take all the shots and do all the the dribbling and passing so he seems odd. pretty much said he was going to let himself get fat and lazy until his team traded him now keep in mind he's a he's a valuable asset so he's very tradable but also right. keep in mind he's getting paid you know 28 million dollars a year sure. to play for at the time the houston rockets how do you feel about that he said he, he was not gonna try hard is right Right, he's gonna be what? he's gonna be a late lazy basketball player, as as because that's that's sort of the only way that he could flex those muscles and demand yeah. a, a trade because it's the team owns his work essentially. Yeah. So I he mean, can't just trade and he can't leave in the middle of a contract. So he's gonna he got fat and lazy um, so as sort of incentive to make the Rockets trade him. How do you feel to about that? Be bad to make them want to say to let him out of his contract. Okay. Uh, I think that doesn't make sense to me as like a, the other decisions made sense to me if you were an athlete who wanted to play hard and win games because that's what athletes want to do. This doesn't make sense to me as an athlete, but it does make. But, me but, but no, but but he demanded of going to go. He demanded to go to one of two teams, both of which had many other superstars. Either he was well, going to join Joel Embiid right. on the uh, Philadelphia 76ers, or he would join. Um, the two nets that we just talked about, Harden and yeah. I, I mean um, Kyrie and Durant. The 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 goal makes sense to me, but the 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 means don't make sense to me. But I think they're also himself fat and lazy. Wouldn't that just seems like a weird choice as an athlete, given that like you have a relatively small window in which to play yes. this game at the top yeah. of your ability. So like I I think that doesn't make sense and seems weird. But I also All right, so you're two don't... for three. Well, no, 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 but I, but I also do, I don't think it's like a a bad thing. I just think it's strange. Like, no, I don't understand we, we, it. Highly judgment. We have to. It's no. We we despise him for making that move. 
Oh, I just think it's, you were wrong. It just makes that. me laugh at his employers, but yeah. You know. Right. So they traded him to the Nets, and now the Nets had. Um, so he was right too. So he goes, you're right. Like, okay. Right. So then the Nets had three of the best six players in basketball um, at the end of last season, but one of the two of them, one of them got hurt, and another one also got hurt, and then somebody else stopped, and they lost when they should have won. Um, and they were they were upset, but they were going to run it back, so they were going to. They were going to do the, the three of them were excited to come into this season to play. Okay. Um, I don't together. understand what running it back is. But it just yeah. means you do it again. Okay. Which is what okay. you do anyway, right? So, right. right. They were excited. To <laughs> that's not, that's not really a choice. That's like. A, that's well, no, they idea. were all under contract to, and they were excited to, to run it back. Yeah, um, okay. But then Kyrie Irving decided that he didn't believe that. Uh, Moderna, Pfizer, or Johnson and Johnson were to be trusted. Hmm. So okay. he he refused to take uh, any of the vaccines, which really wouldn't have been a problem, except that uh, New York City has a law where you're not allowed to go to large public indoor auditoriums right. um, without without being, a professional being vaccinated. Yeah. So he said to the team, um, "I am willing to play road games where." I, uh, they will. The policeman will let me into the building. Right. I just won't play in Brooklyn. So, how do you feel about that decision? And what do you think the Nets did when he said that? I think he's right not to trust those giant pharmaceutical companies because I don't trust them either. I think it seems unwise, socially and medically, not to get vaccinated. And I think the team let him play road games because they want to win games and make money. Okay. So um, you're right about the first part that okay. he should have gotten vaccinated. Yeah. Um, you're wrong. The second, the Nets, the Nets said, no, you can't do oh, it. You're okay. either part of the team or not All right. until Kevin Durant got hurt. Uh Oh, and then they were like, Oh, uh, well we, we, okay. You can play the road games yeah. now. Cause they were um, super dominant. And then they were only, then Believe. they were only competitive. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So Kevin Durant got hurt. And mm -hmm. then um, Kyrie Irving was playing the road games. And he and James Harden, James Harden's the guy who got uh, in shape after he was sent to the to the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, James Harden um, was playing all the games. And Kyrie just played the road games. But what do you think James Harden felt during the home games now? So when he was the only big time player playing and one of them was hurt and the other one didn't want to get vaccinated and wasn't allowed in the building, he thought, dang it, this is just like that last team I was on when I decided so, to get fat and lazy. So what do you think he did this round? Did he say, I'm going to get fat and lazy until Kyrie Irving gets vaccinated? Or did he say, uh, I've changed my attitude about playing and I realized that my time on earth is finite and you know, there's nothing new under the sun and I nope. no. So uh, he just got fat and lazy and demanded to be <laughs> traded to the 76ers. Were they the um, other team that he wanted yes, to go to? They okay. were the other team that he was interested in playing for. Yeah. Um, Such a strange and yet apparently effective <laughs> strategy that he keeps deploying. <laughs> he's, he's so good at, at rapidly becoming fat and lazy for strategic purposes. <laughs> 
Wow. So he's like a character actor. Yeah. <laughs> so he's Jesse Plemons. Um, so um, Jesse he, Plemons is yet to join the Nets or the 76ers, though. I think he's 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 got the first part down. But yeah. No, but he's at the top of his game. And he is. He, is, he gets yeah. fat and seems lazy. Right. Like yeah. that. I don't know what he was doing. And what's that movie called? Year of the Dog. Is that Power of the Dog? Yeah. Power of the Dog. Power he was dog. just fat and lazy that whole movie. Did he, yeah. was he even acting? He was just like a big sad sack. He seemed acting. He was not acting nearly as hard as Benedict Cumberbatch or oh. or that weird little boy. Or oh, those guys Jason were Dunst. acting. They were acting, acting with a capital hard. A. Another thing about Tracy O'Day, she really cares about acting. She does. I mean, I do. I do too. I think writing is more important. Like a bad, a well acted, poorly written movie sucks to watch. True. But, yeah. So we've gotten to the point. So there, there happened to be in uh, Philadelphia a player who was one of the best players in the league like top 10 not top five except he was mm -hmm. terrible at shooting and seems the, like a fatal flaw. yeah it's a big it's it's a yeah it's a weakness it's a weakness theory what to, are the other game. Like he, he's good at dribbling and he's dribbling fast <laughs> rebounding passing okay defense shooting's effort. a big one though shooting yeah. right up there so his team uh did very poorly in the playoffs because of how bad he was at shooting Mm -hmm. And the uh, the fans in Philadelphia aren't known for their uh, patience, patience and generosity when it, yeah. when it comes to their failing sports teams. So people said mean things to him after the playoff series where he missed all these shots and got grumpy. So he decided just not to play this year. Huh? Like in revenge. Like he went on a strike of one. Yeah, except he, yeah, he just, he would just get paid and not play. Is that, but I thought, isn't that a breach of contract, right? Like, completely. He... Absolutely. Oh, okay. So how do you feel about that decision where a bad shooter who's otherwise very good um, lost a series with his teammates and then everyone made a big deal out of how bad a shooter he was. Uh, and then he just refused to play this, this year for this yeah. team. They said, you have to send me to another team or else I'm just not going to play where the fans are nicer like that was what he that was his criterion was that like the other team would have well like in general people fans. wouldn't be so mean about how he was bad at shooting uh, yeah i mean again i think it's such a weird thing to choose as a professional athlete given like that you are an athlete but it also makes me laugh at his employers because like they're i have no pity for these like billionaires who decided to give him millions of dollars so whatever i mean just totally agree yeah so uh as of a couple days ago, the fat and lazy James Harden was traded for the terrible shooting, hurt feelings Ben Simmons. It's a real gift of the Magi. And everybody's <laughs> unhappy. It's great. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Well, it sounds like everyone got exactly what they deserved. <laughs> uh, yeah, all right. You did great. You're okay. like... So I wanted to ask you why all of the sudden everybody present company included has marrying heather haverlasky fever so correct me if i'm wrong but she's a um an advice columnist is that right yes i and think she's done she, other things too but yeah i think that's a big part of it i, I didn't i didn't mean to, to to so narrowly define her i'm sure she contains multitudes but is she <laughs> is she not known uh, primarily as an advice columnist i believe so yeah, she also. And, I keep. I always confuse her with that actress from uh, Mad Men. Uh, 
They're like also very like striking with a high forehead, but yeah, different different people. The blonde? No, brunette. She was also in that um, Joe Swanberg series on Netflix. Easy. Oh, the um, the the what's the California religion called? Is she a Scientologist as well? Yeah, she's oh. a Scientologist. Okay, that seems I could believe either of them were Scientologists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but anyway, she, yeah, she sure. was briefly married to Fred Armistead, the uh, Saturday Night Live Armistead uh, comedian, Armistead, Fred Armistead. I thought he was gay. Well, I don't know. I, yeah, apparently, my I don't know, but apparently, it was either the homosexuality or the Scientology that that broke. It was too that funny for her. Uh, yeah. Okay. But no, this is not that person. This is a, a columnist. A totally different human yeah. being. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So this this person, and again, you're a little bit ahead of me on this narrative that, but she um, gave other people advice, and then she wrote a delightful article for the New York Times, which is an excerpt of her book about how terrible her husband is. Yes. So could, how did uh, <laughs> the, the gap that I don't understand is how does that how does that make her appealing or how does that make her unappealing what what is oh. how do how do we react to that 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 very long excerpt in the times about how terrible her husband is a in a myriad of ways the the ostensible thesis of which was that uh, uh, a marriage requires amnesia um, the, because say, how terrible your husband is and yeah. all husbands are what's the what's the name for in an article for the little line that goes under the the title it's it called a subhead or the, the subhead. head and then the deck dek is the often deck. how that's referred to yeah. in the in the business the, what's the, the deck what's is, the deck do i hate my husband oh for sure yes definitely and that seems to be really the that seems like the the true thesis of the of the article it is it has these moments of grace where she says he's a very handsome professor leader among men a visionary who has big ideas about the future of science education in america and then she also says he is a cursed academic a cross between a lonely nerd speaking some archaic language only five other people on earth understand and a haunted ice cream man circling his truck through the neighborhood in the dead of winter searching for children she speaks it's sort with of just, a good line. Oh no, I, mean, the, I think it's great. Haunted ice cream man. It's funny writing. It, it's it's but it great. also like weirdly implies pedophilia. Like I that don't, is a weird like, one. Yeah, like she's just not quite in control of her language in in this no. piece. I no, it's it also is also her husband um is 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 flatulent. Like her husband make is constantly he's making flimmy noises and he burps and he sneezes he's, loudly and he she calls him. He's uh, grotesque. He's grotesque in her eyes. Yes, he is exactly the same as a heap of laundry. Smelly, inert, almost sentient, but not quite. Is a heap of laundry almost sentient? Is it not quite inert? Is it? I, I don't. No, isn't it completely non-inert? Inert? It's inert, I mean, like it's not going anywhere. It's, it's like it, it succumbs it to inertia. inert. I'm saying. Yeah, but is she it, didn't say it. She didn't say it's only partly inert. She says it's totally inert, but almost oh. sentient. Which seems oh, like a strange okay. qualification oh, for I, I shifted the modifier. Yeah, and then so, she has a long section in the middle that's just a series of rhetorical questions about how she is a good and long-suffering and patient helpmeet and mother, and he's an inconsiderate jerk, and her her children are horrible. Uh, there were so many um, rhetorical questions that I, in all sincerity, lost track of 
what the answers to the rhetorical questions were? I think all of the correct answers were, I, Heather Haverlasky, the superior spouse, but it was quite confusing. It, it did get so involved. Right? Yes, yes. Because it was it so was... specific at times and so general otherwise that I, like, who, who, who was the person who would deliver their mother-in-law the sandwich at 2 a.m.? You know, and it's like, I, I guess you or was it him and I, or somebody else? It, right. But there yeah. were a lot of them. There were it a was, lot of those questions. Yeah. It was like a, one of those uh, sermons that gets sort of the, the priest gets lost in his own <laughs> right. in his own thesis and everybody I, kind of I, nods vaguely. I also found that like all of the compliments of her husband were like from his Wikipedia page, you know, like all the. <laughs> Like all of the insults were like, if you spend time with this guy, you really hate him. Right. And then she would yeah. back up at the end and say, like, but then I realized that he was a professor and six foot two and born in 1957. Were they in net worth New Jersey? Yeah. You know, like it it was like like you kept I kept on expecting it to turn around like far more dramatically, the reversal to be like we're spending a lot of time on the setup about how awful this man was. So I figured there'd be like a, yeah. a reversal or a recontextualization where it's right. like, but he makes me feel loved and like I am human in a way nothing else in the world does. Right. Oh, I mean, and even the, even probably the most subjective praise she offers him is weirdly damning. And that she says like, he is you know, despite my having known him for 17 years, he has objectively maintained his physical attractiveness. And yet I find him thoroughly repulsive and disgusting to right. be around. And I, I, I find myself just wanting to leave and, and be as far away from him as possible, despite his sort of ob objective looks and stature. Right. His presence makes me hate my, my children um, and my, and my family my life, myself, choices. my, right, everything. What have you seen? People have enjoyed this as more than just stand-up people? Well, so I think, I think people have responded to it in a couple of the obvious ways. One saying, boy, it sounds like she really hates her husband. And right. she, and she, she preempts some of these objections. She says, uh, well, speak for yourself. I don't hate my husband. One of you holier than thou marrieds might announce, folding your hands primly in your lap. Do you think I can't see your left eye twitching ever so slightly as you resolve to never let each irritation add up and move into your conscious mind like a plastic bag floating out to sea and then joining the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which is again a sort of a like a tour de force image, you know, uh, evocation of imagery that doesn't necessarily answer the question. But yeah, I think I think there's I think there's been sort of some predictable. Uh, uh, it sounds like your marriage is horrible. You should get a divorce as, as well as like you, uh, anyone, anyone objecting to what you're saying is a misogynist. And then Walter Kern very recently objected to what she said in a, I thought like relatively measured review in the New York times <laughs> saying this, uh, sometimes the dedication of a book is integral to understanding it Foreverland, a memoir of a marriage that proposes to illuminate marriage itself is simply is dedicated simply to bill the husband of Heather Haverleski, its author who pays him this brief honor as a prelude to writing endlessly about his flaws. This seemingly one-sided bargain is worth noting because it is typical of the relationship at the very center of the story. Bill's putative mental and emotional shortcomings could themselves fill a book and they very nearly do. You know, so my it, question for, yeah. for you is did her discussion of marriage ring true to you? Not really. Because I, I have no idea what she's talking about. Like, 
Because the resolution on your spouse becomes clearer and clearer by the year, you must find compensatory ways to blur and pixelate them back into a soft, muted, faintly fantastical fog. The antecedent to the them is sort of confusing there. Because the resolution on your spouse becomes clearer and clearer by the year, you must find compensatory ways to blur and pixelate them. I think that's the plural being a stand-in for the singular person, right? Pixelate right. the person yeah, back yeah, yeah. into a yeah. soft, muted, faintly fantastical fog. Why is that? Why does it seem obvious to her that clearer resolution is a negative within a marriage? I think because she seems to find any any time the 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 focus gets crisp, she is confronted with all of the particulars that disgust her. And it's only from the Wikipedia distance bird's eye view that the marriage and the husband look good. I mean, it, it just seems like she, it's a, it seems like she's extremely irritated and irritation at a certain point overwhelms everything else. And so it's only by kind of applying a, you know, some Vaseline or some, you know, calamine lotion that she's able to soothe the irritation enough to think abstractly and say, oh, I guess, I guess on paper, this seems okay. Because in my marriage, I have found the opposite that mm. yeah, resolution has become somewhat clearer in some ways. Although my wife, um, we've been married 10 years or so about the same as you, I think. Um, Eleven. We've been married eleven years. I yeah. You got married and, like a couple months before I did. Yeah. Uh, and I, I have found that my wife is clearer to me in some ways than she was before. I also continue to find her um, mysterious in the way that all, all human beings are to me. But I've I found seeing um, her take care of me in moments of of illness and weakness, and when I am at my least appealing, and me guide or help or support best I could her through um, childbirth and and other emotional and, and physical pains. That I I find that I I am incapable of being disgusted by her in the way strangers can disgust me that the actual like pristine physicality that perhaps is important to me upon first dating and falling in love with someone becomes if not irrelevant um at least much much less important over time right. and it, it seems like in many ways, that feels more like a soft, muted, faintly fantastical fog in which I'm living. That that my my, my sense of my wife really has nothing to do with with, with like if she belches because like sometimes right. human beings yeah, have yeah, too yeah. much air in their stomach, you know, or like like whether she has a pimple or or like I, I don't all these things that seem to disgust. Uh, Heather, I, I, I feel like not not that that there aren't things about our marriage or her that that bother me because of of course that's the the nature of spending so much time with anybody, but that yeah. that all of these sort of superficial annoyances, you know, like the 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 the, the old um, 
you know, sitcom, like he chews too loud complaints like that to me really has faded into the background. And I really don't notice a lot of that given like the real pain and pleasure and difficulties and ambitions and sadnesses and joys that we've, we've experienced. I mean, her, her life is, is so tethered to mine and so inseparable from mine at this point that that level of what I really do feel to be superficial judgment in in Heather's work um, was foreign to me as a description of marriage. Yeah, I I think I mean I think there's a I think there may be like uh, like in calculus you see these sort of these um, uh, a peak that a certain a certain like rate of change hits where you like there's a point I think early on in the in the relationship where everything is just hyper lubricated by infatuation and then some of that dims and there probably is a point at which the the specific eccentricities or foibles reach a maximum of irritation and then i think you're you're right that what has happened over time is is like a couple of things one is that you you get used to the other person and the other person's excesses and deficiencies and vice versa, which like you can't be a sane married person without having like, I mean, that's part of it is like her, in addition to occasionally saying he is objectively employed despite my hatred for him. She also (laughs) says like, well, I guess sometimes I can be a little too attentive and you know, sue me if I get seasick sometimes, but I guess he puts up with that while I put up the fact with the fact that he's a disgusting lump of clay that I find repulsive. I think like, there's an imbalance in, right. in her like, sense of self versus her sense of other. Um, yeah. I do accept the fact that I am um, unbearable in many ways. Right. And it's it's not like um, tangential to my understanding of our marriage, the fact no. that I'm unbearable in many ways. It's, <laughs> no, it's, right. it's, it's, it's very core. Like, oh, oh, you, like- you, you talked about, um, you mentioned earlier that there's a stage of infatuation and then then there, there's a stage of, of um, judgment or, or being bothered. I feel in my life, uh, in, in my relationship with, with my wife, um, that probably not coincidentally, that stage of being bothered by her or feeling judgmental about her coincided with the stage of uncertainty as to whether I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. That I, I feel mm-hmm. like in that post-infatuation, pre-marriage, when two people really are thinking independently, like, is this the human being I am going to decide upon? Yeah. I think it makes sense that it's in those moments you think like, well, is he or she just like gross and I don't want to be around her too much? Or is he or she like too full of himself and I don't want to be around him too much? Or is he or she too cold or too egomaniacal or too distant or too needy or all of these things? And and I think that- It's like the moment you sober up a little bit and then you look at the person in the clear light of day and you say, okay, all right. And you're like, if I'm going to propose or accept a proposal, like I I should really judge this person and and see where I land on that judgment. I, I feel like some of the magic of marriage and what I really have- um, why my marriage is the most important thing in my life is that once I've, I, I committed to that and once my, my now wife committed to that, a lot of those anxieties about each other have been 
pushed in the background or like dealt with. Like, yes, we both accept the fact that like I'm unbearable and she has her issues also, but like we've signed up to do this and we don't talk a lot about the, all the ways that we're unbearable. Cause like everybody's unbearable and it, right. It's sort of part of the, the marriage pact in, in my mind that like you, and, you, you stop caring about the, these eccentricities and super, superficialities. Right. Well, and you, and you find a rhythm to your day and managing and like you, you work around each other. And it also seems like it's so hard to be married and not go out into the world with your spouse and be around a lot of the other people without coming home and saying to each other like, oh my God, I can't believe how shitty everyone else is compared to the two of us who understand each other and are so much closer. And like, oh, even though we fight implicitly. with each other, like we are way closer together than we are to all these other assholes. Right. It I also seems married like couples have, have that conspiratorial kind of. Yeah. I, I was going to say, what's the word you use for like superficial pleasures? like TV shows that you watch, even though you shouldn't like them. Oh, guilty pleasures. Or... Yeah. Guilty pleasures, I guess. Like I, yeah, I think that yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a guilty pleasure that, that almost all married people have, I think. Right. But it, it also feels like as judgment a, of other people's relationships, I would even say like in the context of a marriage, that's almost like, like dirty sex. Like it's a guilty pleasure. That's not actually a guilty pleasure. It's just like, right. a, it's just, it's almost a virtuous pleasure. Totally. Uh, and that it, like, it, right. It, and that nobody's hurt and it makes both of you, it's a way to almost compliment the other, um, implicitly yeah oh yeah and i mean it also seems like as you pointed out you know 20 somethings are superior to 40 somethings in so far as they are more physically pristine but in literally every other way 20 somethings are far more irritating like it's like i mean that's that's like you know it, that's the one obvious way in which he's like, yeah, everyone's body is a little bit better better when when they're younger. I mean, with with maybe a couple of weird exceptions, but like also everyone is so much more insufferable when when they're oh, that age. There's, there's mean, nothing worse than a twenty three. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I when I the the sort of the, the the most critical thing I can say about somebody is that he or she is acting as I did when I was nineteen. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, where where I think um, Heather gets gets it right is pretty much the only time she allows for different types of marriage in the piece where she states that marriage can cure your loneliness or exacerbate it. I, I think that that is certainly true. And I am, again, blessed in in not very many ways, but one way is that I I think by disposition am, am somewhat lonely. I, I was homesick um, a lot as a kid. You know, I was anxious about going away to summer camp. I missed my parents even as old as when I was in college, you know, in grad school, I had some moments of if I, if it wasn't my parents, it was, I was missing, at least it was my life, you know, in, in New York and, and friends. And uh, my marriage has uh, really cured my loneliness in the same way I was attached um, as a, as a kid to my parents and home, I find myself attached to my wife, except I am more secure weirdly in my marriage than I was as a child because I children grow up and like, you, you know, the expectation is that, you know, one day you will be out of this comfortable, probably Jewish uh, inflected world of like people who cared a lot about me and were always interested in all the bullshit that happened to me all day, every day. Like I was, I was important to other people in that way. And yeah. as I was, you know, becoming a young adult, I realized I was no longer important to anybody that way or the people to whom I was important in that way. It was sort of embarrassing to, to want them to feel that I was important in that way. You know, pretty much my sister and parents I'm talking about, but, right. but finding somebody else who really has agreed to stick it out 
with me um, has cured my loneliness, where I, I definitely has have seen the opposite, where I've seen friends who get married for the sake of getting married or sex, or it was that time in their life where they wanted kids. And, yeah. and there's a, a particularly um, vicious type of loneliness, I, I think, that marriage can enable, where you people don't feel as though their spouses see them and understand them for whom they are. And they feel like they need to, to play a bit of a character. And that, that is a type of loneliness that I think can be profoundly painful. Uh, and I think that Heather's right in saying that marriage can cure or exacerbate uh, one's loneliness. What I find weird is that she doesn't realize that she's in the exacerbation camp and she writes yeah. the rest of the piece as though it's a truth universally acknowledged that we are all in marriages that exacerbate our loneliness. Yes. I, and I, I think my, I am, I have less of a, a, you're, you seem in your description of marriage to have completed a process. And I feel less that way myself, but I will say that, that another way in which her, account of marriage feels counterintuitive to me or feels sort of backwards to me is that she seems to insist that it's a soft focus and a forgetfulness and a willful ignorance that allows marriages to continue happily. Whereas I, I tend to think that my own experience is such that like, sure, a willful ignorance or a soft focus can keep you from like actively getting into tiffs, but it is when I am more attentive and am more openly and specifically communicating with my wife that we are happier. Like it's, it's when we actually have a moment to pay attention to each other, that we remember that we like each other and we're not just like co-managers of a, of a small dubious corporation. Right. And uh, in Heather's that, defense, she does end her piece for the times with that realization that like when she finally screams at the kids so much that they just have to go away and play their video games, she gets yeah. a drink alone with her husband. And that's when she realizes that maybe she doesn't loathe him as much as she has discussed loathing him up until this point. Yeah. The loathing I, is the, 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 like it's, I find the loathing makes less sense than the, than the, just the like, general frantic haggard i mean like in some ways it, it is it, there's a different article that would have a slightly different but maybe truer angle if this were about raising children right which is i think a, a different kind of thing I, I don't think i don't loathe my children either but there is a there's a different kind of constant rising irritation that can come from just raising small children which is yeah, and, and also um the children don't sublimate their own frustrations with me and sacrifice themselves <laughs> right, for my yeah. benefit in the way yeah, that yeah. my wife does <laughs> yeah, you know exactly. like like the yeah. the chill the children just demand things of me and then complain when i give them to them yes and it's, that, it's a little more <laughs> i would divorce my kids in, in a second you know like that yes. there, there's no it's a terror it's terrible but right. it's sort of what you sign up for like yeah i don't really blame them like they're just like asshole kids uh whereas yes. If I were in, or if if my wife treated me as my kids do, I might write a big article about how terrible my wife was. Yeah, yeah, like a, a toddler with the body of a twenty three year old would be a felon, and a twenty three year old with but the a body sexy of a, felon. <laughs> well, a twenty three year old with the body of a forty three year old would be like a, a total social pariah. Like if you had the mind and personality of a twenty three year old, and you and you weren't 
hot like a 23 year old, then you would be, you'd have really nothing going for you at all. So this, this works maybe too well as a transition to something else I, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about, which yeah. is like, I felt music and art as deeply as I felt love and experience as an 18, 16 through 23 year old. Um, but now I, I don't, I, I feel love as profoundly, um, but, mm -hmm. but in terms of what I find like um, profound, I guess pr profundity yeah. is the word where like, I, I remember uh, listening to Bob Dylan and Paul Simon in, in my world and reading James Joyce and Philip Roth and, 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 and feeling like, holy shit, like, this is something like th yeah. there is some truth here that I hadn't previously touched on or, or I need to hear it again and again and again. And, and, and I need to think about it. Is there anything else written by, by this guy, James yeah. Joyce, you know, and I, I was, I mean, how unbearable is this? I would like give people portrait of the artist as a young man when I was <laughs> as a young man, <laughs> as a young man, I gave people this book and like, I gave it to, you know, like a, like a, aspiring bureaucrats. Like I, like I, I wasn't like, this wasn't like, I wasn't, you know, I would like give a, a girl I was friends with, but didn't have romantic interest to like a copy. Like it, it was really oh as God, unbearable as, as you would imagine. But the purpose isn't as we've established how unbearable all young people are, but it's that like, I believed in it. Like I, it wasn't just shtick. Like, yes, there was a performative element to like gifting people these, these obnoxious, you know, uh, over erudite works. But like, I, I would read by myself and be like, oh my God, this is, he must be like a genius, like in the way that Michael Jordan is a basketball genius, like James Joyce is, is a is a words genius. Or, you know, I, I would listen to the, the lyrics by by Dylan and, and Simon and, and say like, oh, there, there's a a depth of understanding here that that is what it means to be human, you know? Like I this is what separates us from the animals, the, the ability to articulate. And now I don't really listen to new music. I just listen to the same music that affected me when I was a kid. Yeah. I, I read more widely, but I very, very, very rarely am affected in uh, literature or any of the arts as I was as, as a kid. And and I wanted your take about like, is what I'm saying just obvious that like, of course, in these formative periods of time, the works of art that you stumble upon become more meaningful you meaningful to you than anything else? Um, or is it somewhat more interesting? And, and, and my argument for it being somewhat more interesting is that I might suggest that it, except perhaps for someone talking to me about children dying in a way that yeah, like yeah, would affect yeah. me now, but wouldn't have affected me before I had kids. There is nothing profound. There is nothing I could read or hear or be told that would in any sincerity feel profound to me. And, and I think a lot of people would agree with the first part of what, what I said, which is that like, yeah, when you're young, there are these, you know, uh, artistic um, pathways, you know, that, that are open to, to your, your soul or brain or whatever it is that that makes you the, the growing human being that you're, you're becoming. Um, and those aren't as uh, vulnerable to prodding uh, in adulthood as they are to young adulthood and teenagehood. I, I think a lot of people would agree with me, but I don't know if they would agree that just like 
I have aged out of feeling new words or art as profound. Yeah, I I both sympathize and have a slightly different experience. Before I articulate that distinction, though, I'm overwhelmed by a by an imagined response to something I said slightly before you made this this segue, which is which is that uh, somebody with the body of a 43 year old and the mind of a 23 year old would have nothing to author, offer. Just to clarify, for the sake of my own marital bliss, my, my wife, who is years old, uh, is actually alarmingly physically well preserved and in, in, almost intimidatingly so. And I, I have uh, nothing but praise to, <laughs> to offer her. Uh, uh, I thought you were going in a uh, different yeah. direction. I thought you were going to say that <laughs> like, it's so obviously misogynistic and offensive to oh, say God. that 23 year olds have nothing to offer and that 48 year old bodies are hideous. Like, <laughs> that is what's fucked up about what you said. Not that you're no, but ma- I'm not win, male, or, male or female. No, not, yeah, no, male or female. 23 So forget misogynistic, just like ageist, it, and misanthropic. Yeah. It's like both not true that 23 year olds are unbearable and that 48 year olds are unattractive. Yeah. Like you can't, yeah, both sure. of those things are so obviously <laughs> offensive and terrible that like, that's yeah. what you should be yeah, no, I, uh, retreating I, on. Not I, that no, the I retreat, individual with whom you live is going to yeah. be offended. No, I retreat not at all on my, my, uh, <laughs> on my general misanthropy. It's only in terms of my, this specific case. Uh, it's like that, like, uh, what was the uh, the 2000 election decision? Like this applies only in this instance right, and right, it's not right. to be applied elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah. The fun uh, yeah. part of that is Al Gore was like, all right, sounds cool. Good with me. American <laughs> yeah. democracy. It's important. Yeah. It's yeah. Makes sense. I guess this is good for, yeah, that was a, that was a strange choice. Strange moment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I do share your sense of diminishing returns when it comes to the experience of art. There were, there's a certain kind of uh, total immersion that I felt in like reading, especially sort of adventure novels or these kind of things as a, as like a, a kid and preteen and teenager. And then even in college, I think there was sort of like, there was a way in which reading fiction could just totally wash me under and transform my vision of the world. Like could fundamentally yes change the prism through which I existed. And say, and the, you know, and the, and the same went for reading certain you know kinds of philosophy or seeing certain movies or plays. Yeah, like I think generally speaking, art uh, hit harder and was more likely to reorient me than than now. And and probably probably. Let, let me just stop because I'm curious. Yeah. Is is your um, the the way you just use the term reorientation? Is that synonymous with how I use the word profound? Is the definition of a profound work that it reorients one's vision of the world? No, I think that is different. I think you're saying that it could change your vision of life, right? Change your vision of your outlook on things. That seems to me different than profundity, which is like depth and weight. I mean, I think like there there are works of art I have read that didn't make me look all that differently on things, but it it made me feel what understanding I had more richly and in a, in a way that sort of ached. Right. And to me, that's, that's the far more powerful emotion. Right. Well, that's, 
that and that's the emotion that has changed less. Like fewer oh, for things... me, that's the emotion that has changed entirely. Huh. So I, I would say that there are many ways that my understanding of the world and even my 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 feeling about it can change these days. Like I, I briefly mentioned to you that I've been reading, you know, works about animal rights and like Peter Singer's Animal Liberation yeah. fundamentally changed my vision of uh, morality around um, animals. And like that could have happened when I was 17 and that could happen now. And I, I am swayed by arguments, you know, um, about how maybe the Democratic Party should um, not focus as much on the leftist ideology, I believe, for practical reasons that they will actually accomplish more if they hew towards the political center. Like that is a, an argument that I've been reading a lot from a variety of places and I think has convinced me and changed my vision of morality and my own expectations and desires. That being said, you said diminishing returns. I would say I frequently experience that like core shaking depth of artistic profundity as a young person yeah. and it's not diminishing returns i never experiencing it experience it now i don't know if i'm yeah. capable of experiencing it now right i i think no i mean that's yeah i think i do have a different experience because i i experience it less than i used to but i do still experience it typically in the context of either very like large or substantial pieces of writing, like novels or kind of major works of nonfiction, or or in in almost like in any connection to my children. Like, oh I, yeah, that, that's yeah. that's the exception that I that I I may I am I am vulnerable now to anything about my kids that. I didn't have that vulnerability about myself or anything when I was when I was younger. I mean, I'm whether it's thinking about other children or watching my kid be called on on you know a Zoom when I'm in the other room and desperately like gut wrenchingly wanting them to, if not get the right answer, do something that doesn't make my kid more uncomfortable. Like the right the the, the there, there are profound emotions there. But I, I want to stick more to art because like in the realm of right. health or like my own health or the health of my children or loved ones or life or death or I mean, I am. I, I feel deeply I'm saying that I used to go by myself to like sad art house films yeah. and like feel those profoundly. Now I would. Right. Like look at my watch a lot and and want them to, to be over. Well, or but like you, I used but you to... also would. I mean, when was the last time you you even like were able to go to a sad art house film on your own? Yeah, that's true. Like that's that's I mean, true. That's, that's got to be part. Never of it. years. Yeah, but I mean, so so even if I just stick to art, I think like I have become more vulnerable to to like sentimental manipulation when it comes to children. Like I am, I am like not to a horrible degree but like to a slightly mortifying degree i am susceptible in the way that you mocked in one of our e earlier conversations to like the pixar wrenching endings especially if i'm watching with my daughter which is which is the only time i watch a pixar movie right. so like i i am i am a little bit vulnerable to that and i think like so i finished 
my daughter recently read the brothers Lionheart and I read parts of it with her. And then I read the end of it with her and, uh, you know, spoiler alert for a, for a, uh, a, a decades old Swedish children's novel. Uh, the main characters kill themselves at the end. Uh, and reading it to her, it, like I remember being really like touched and disturbed by that book when I read it as a kid and I gave it to her because I loved it and thought about it all the time as a kid. And then I sort of watched her digest the ending and was like moved on her behalf and like terrified as a parent for like having given her this thing and felt like this, you know, like hugged her and like also felt this terrible distance between like two different like mortal creatures recognizing their mortality. So, like I feel quite susceptible to, to like both cheap and rich emotional manipulation in in art. Yeah, you might it, you might have actually when it comes to my children, there, right? That's that's really interesting. And and to to take that a step further and to to show why maybe I am wrong and you are right here is that probably most of the songs I listened to and the films and plays that moved me and the books, you know, I mentioned Portrait of the Artist as, as a young man. These were all works about coming of age and finding first love and all of these um, life experiences that I myself was going through at that time. So of course, like love songs and what, whether, you know, one can grow up and, and accomplish what one wants and the loneliness of late childhood and, and young adulthood, like maybe the answer is just that because I am not aligned with those emotions or, or thoughts right now, they don't have much profundity to me. But yeah. what really, where, where I am vulnerable now in terms of fatherhood and, and health and, and areas like that, there is where I am more susceptible to that profound. And may, maybe that's just the answer because that that's that's convincing to me and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And because yeah. I was I was creating almost like a uh, a hierarchy of emotions where it's like, the stuff I listened to initially and read initially when I was a kid, like that's the powerful stuff. And now everything that affects right. me is just like cheap kid stuff. But right. the truth yeah, is, yeah, yeah. it's just that I'm no longer obsessed with coming of age and love and virginity and pain, you know, that that young adults go through. And really what I'm obsessed with now is like transitioning into middle age and my own children's lives. And like those are as valid uh emotional touchstones they're just different yeah. yeah i think i think they're like also and this is i've talked about this in the context of poetry or lyric poetry specifically but like i think really sharp emotional peaks and troughs are a little rarer in middle age for a but i think that could be because reasons. of what we're what we're discussing where when you go through a series of romantic relationships or a series of you know, different mentors and different potential career paths or a series of different friends. Like, I, I think there is a rapid succession of change in a way yeah. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. one's younger years than like right now, I've got my two kids, I've got my wife, I've got right. my jobs and the the experience is going to be a slight shift in that world. Whereas if my wife came in here and told me that she was leaving me, I probably would suddenly become a lot more right. vulnerable to a whole different series of of works of art. Right. I mean, yeah, that's like that's the that's actually the the uh, the the control we're talking about is like the 
the the middle aged body with the with the uh, you know post adolescent mind is the recent divorcee, right? <laughs> it's like goes into crisis and starts acting like a college kid again, right? And uh, then starts yeah. doing a million crunches every night before bed, like in <laughs> right. order for yeah. for every reason imaginable, yeah. yeah. Uh, and getting it, getting you know single ear pierced and so yeah. Uh, the, so the the two you kind of identified two different qualities that a work of art or a work of culture can have and i think i think i i slightly miss i think i slightly misrepresented my own experience what i do think that the i feel le like less often feel that deep profundity that or that deep profundity is redundant but i feel less often feel profundity in response to a work of art or culture but but not never and and for, for the reasons we talked about the other the other quality is I don't know what you the influ, influence of a work of art, like the the degree to which a work of art changes your mind. And I think I think my actual experience has not been that works of art or works of culture less often change my mind. I think I, I have my mind changed relatively often. But what's really changed is that I don't get whiplash the way I used to because I am so much less sure of what I think ever. And I think I used to get turned around in a way that felt wrenching and shocking because I was so sure of things. And then I would be totally, have my mind totally changed and then and then be sort of obsessed with that change. Whereas now I, I frequently run into things that, as you say, make me think like, oh, I guess that's a, huh, I never thought about that. And that but I think that's partly just because I'm, I'm, I realize what an idiot I am and I'm more- Is that unusual? Yeah. Because I also realize what an idiot I am. And I, I don't think that that is the narrative one typically tells, or at least typically told about getting older. Where what I, I feel like the, the 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 typical narrative is that you bounce around with ideas. You sort of date ideas in the same way you date people as a kid. You know, you're a, a liberal, and then you're a communist, and then you know right. uh, you're a, you you are an activist, and then you you know become disillusioned and, yeah. and stuff. But in your middle age, you settle in to really your core beliefs, and it's not yeah. the exact same as saying. If you're not a liberal when you're young, you're an asshole. And if you're not a conservative when you're old, you're an idiot or whatever sure. that expression is supposed to be. But it there's something like that. Like the idea is if if that there's a um a, a way that one cheats on one's ideas a whole lot more as a young person and then settles into wisdom or or the the, the truth, or if not a universal truth, then then what you know, core beliefs, I, I think. But what you and I seem to have separately come to is a lack of real value put on our own beliefs, where I, I right now just don't put much stock in, in truths or like in what I feel about ideas or, you know, w whether it's government or like people should like, I don't really, I, I used to think like people should, and then I would like be able to end that sentence. But right. Right. Yeah. Lately, I just don't. Should is a I, thought I, that comes to my mind less often. Right. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't know what people should do, like about anything, about raising their kids, about working, about money, about family, a basketball about team, yeah. politics, right. About James Harden getting fat when he wants to leave his, <laughs> like I, people, it's, it's really certainty of any kind that I find unbecoming yeah. at, at, at the moment. And I, I wonder whether is that always what people as they age feel or is that something 
sort of deep rooted in, in aging towards moral relativism that I didn't think would be the natural process of one's maturation. I wonder if that doesn't have something to do with, as with, as with like, I wonder a little bit about our Heather Haverleski question, whether our read is partly because our wives are the Heather Haverleskis of our marriage and we are the Bills. But I wonder also like when it comes to this question of certainty in middle age, if that has to do with the fact that you are for a variety of reasons, not powerful middle-aged people. Like we don't, we don't even whatever, like even whatever the question of like the influence you have on your kids or the influence you have through your writing, like forgetting any of that, like we are unlike plenty of middle-aged people of our socioeconomic class, we are in charge of no one. We don't have any power. I don't know. Is that, maybe that, maybe that's not different. Maybe that's just Maybe. Me. I'm trying to think about that in a couple of different directions. One, I, I do um, run and own a tutoring company. Oh, you do. Like that's right. You're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, so then. Not employees, but yeah. for tax purposes, they're not employees. If anybody's listening, but like <laughs> the tutors, contractors, who, the tutors right. who work for my company yeah. are independent contractors and I have the paperwork to prove it. Uh, so I, I don't think it's, yeah, no, so you aren't because I also feel like there are different levels of, of manager and moneymaker and owner and operator who, who feel very certain about things. But I also know a whole lot of poets and writers who have certainty as well. Like I, 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 I don't, I don't think, um, commercial power or whatever, a better way to say with the, of, of being in charge of stuff is, um, really relates to to this question so much as like realizing how hard things are maybe like i i i to to me it it seems like everything is a a bit of a compromise in a way that i didn't fully understand like even what you said half in jest about not trusting moderna or pfizer but of course taking the moderna or, or pfizer vaccine is sort of how i i see all of life like i don't I don't really trust anything or anybody, but like, you got to do the things you got to do. And I, I, in, in, in my experience, it's like, everything is a compromise. Anybody who's an ideologue about anything is, is misguided. Anybody who feels so strongly that really what education should be about is teaching uh, the tenets of critical race theory, like a- a absolutism on that side, I find almost as unbecoming as absolutism on the how dare we talk about race in, in the classroom. Like just uh, people who are ideologues in, in any way at all, I find um, off-putting. Uh, and I don't know why that is now. I, I don't know whether that's a, a process of maturation, as I keep on saying, or whether it's just something weird about my life experience. Yeah. I, the, the the phrase that came to mind was from you know the Arlington Robinson poem Mr. Flood's Party. No, I, I know um, the poem about the rich guy whom everyone wants to be, and then he Richard kills Corey. himself at the yeah. end. And then Richard Paul, Corey. Paul, uh, Simon and Garfunkel did a did a, a version of it. But yeah, there's a, just a little line in Mr. Flood's Party where he he's drinking from this jug, and then he sets it down with trembling care, knowing that most things break. And that feels to me like a lot of middle age is just like, I feel like when like my yeah. kids like bump into things or like pick up the dog in a weird way. I'm like, do you, do most things yeah, break. Don't you realize? Don't you realize? It's it's all about to fall apart. It's all about to fall apart. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do have that. I think I share your feeling, but I, I also don't know at all whether that's, I, I'll say like, I think my 
parents both seem maybe maybe it's the, like the Mark Twain thing where like when I was when I was a child my father was a god when I was a young man my father was a fool and when I was you know and now uh, I see that he's he's just about as smart as I am um, but like I, I, it may be that but I also feel like my parents as they have gotten older have become less certain and more uh, more understanding of a variety of of outlook so I, I see I still see it a little bit as being I mean kind of like you know like grandchildren are always easier on kids than parents like you and partly that's because they're not your kids and partly just because you're old and tired and I mean they, like that's that's also part like that's part of the profundity thing with art it's like like wow that was amazing but also I need to go to bed yeah uh, <laughs> yeah right as opposed to I need to stay up for another six hours right to, and have seven more beers it. and then yell at somebody yeah. in the bar about this yeah uh yeah I I, I don't I don't know why I don't know why that is and I don't know if we are normal or not in that way. Feel free to tweet at uh, Sleerickets if you, <laughs> yeah, if you yeah. have, isn't that what you're supposed to do in podcasts? Like yeah, yeah. For all, all you all you listeners, please uh, reach out to what's your what's your email address? Sleerickets at gmail.com or at Sleerickets on Twitter. Yeah, with your feelings about whether. Uh, when people age, they lose all confidence in their opinions, or whether Matthew and I are just sad. Which is which is also odd because I I know like I I have in becoming less sure of my own opinions. I also started a podcast where I shout opinions at a microphone all the time, <laughs> and I think about that partly thinking like, well, but I think that's what's so delightful about your opinions. The, the sort of the, the sense that the, they are the total both, rootlessness of them, the exactly, insubstantiality ex of them. Ex exactly. The, the, the sense that like, um, that you, you phrase them so clearly, but if one disagrees with them, it doesn't matter. Cause I don't think you would hate the people who don't share your opinion. No, no, like, no. I, I often disagree with myself. Yeah. If you think this is more or less common, I am curious what people's own experiences will. Though I guess like who is going to write in and say, no, I have become more cocksure and less flexible with age and this is correct and universal. Like that's, you almost like have to, it's, it's like, but isn't it's that like what the, politics is? is? Isn't that why everybody's pretending we're going to have a civil war now? Because, like, oh, but I think I think people will say, "Here's the thing." I think plenty of people, people will say, say other people, other people do that with age, but not me. But anybody who would say I do that with age also has the the insight to say, "Wow, oh, what's how strange it is that I would do that, and how arbitrary." And it's like the, like the, you know the distinction between the Platonists and the Aristotelians. The Platonists care about the difference between Aristotelians and Platonists. Right. Please never tell anybody that that's a joke. I think you'll, you'll lose. I think you'll lose whatever friends you have left if you introduce yeah. that as, "Hey, I have this joke. Yeah. You want to hear? You yeah. want to hear my joke?" Yeah. That's a, there's another there's another conversation about making friends in middle age. How <laughs> I have, haven't done it. I want. Yeah, I did win my. Well, who my needs wife friends home. when you have a podcast? I mean, that's the whole. Yeah, when I, like when I think of it, like most of my most of like my wife's anecdotes about when she and I first got together consist of like his personality was horrible, but I found him sort of vis visually appealing, and so I was able to overlook how how irritating everything he said was. So I think yeah, I really bore bore things out accurately there. I do. I am so I I uh, in my extremely shallow preparation for this podcast did think about this this question that I have 
chewed on for a while because a friend said something to me like before I was 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 married at all about this funny distinction in marriage or in you know like uh, in a in a an erotic relationship over time romantics I, I there's a, it needs to be a better word for it because romantic such a clumsy word for this but what we mean when like we say sexual is that is yeah it, is, that's why an erotic is not quite right because arrows oh you said fades, erotic yeah. Erotic. I you said yeah. neurotic. Neurotic. That's also erotic. a weird word, isn't it? It Doesn't is. Erotic well, have certain connotations beyond sexual, like. Well, it's what's. I mean, it's I mean like, it just means the, sexual, so it doesn't. But does, isn't isn't yeah. the way that it's used like commonly erotic? Like, erotic. Has a, like erotic. Almost pornographic connotation. Well, erotica. Is no, I understand that right. you can put the word A and it turns into a different word that means <laughs> yeah. porn. I'm just saying that, like, put the word A, put, put yeah. the letter Erotica A. Erotica is to porn as, like, humorist is to comedian, though. Right, <laughs> right. So it just has, like, a, a crappy uh Yeah, it's, it's sort of like... Erotic. Yeah, or, like, erotic art is just... Like, erotic yeah, art's horrible, yeah. Right. Erotic art is, like, why not be pornography or why not be not, yeah. If it were just erotic, good art, then you wouldn't sex. bother to call it erotic art. It's sort of, like, experimental art. just yeah. sex. Yeah, there's no such thing as erotic sex. So what can you put the word erotic to that makes it better? A relotic, an erotic uh, uh, relationship, right? No, no, that's, it's a romantic relationship. Well, no, but a romantic a sexual has all this other weird ba baggage. Well, a sexual relationship, word... yeah, yeah, yeah. Erotic, okay. well, yeah, I mean, so erotic probably only applies to the to the infatuation phase, right? Because it's arrows, you're struck with the golden arrow and you're kind of, you, you have this. All on, right, I'll go with that. Like which 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 like for the Greeks. But have a, you ever said? Have you ever told anybody that you are in an erotic relationship? Yeah, but also what? I I also like you made were the mistake. Despicable. My I, wife my wife told me that she hated when when couples say we're pregnant, which I also think is dumb. Yeah, because, yeah, it's one human being. Yeah, one only. But then she also hated it when I said when I told people I got Joanna pregnant. <laughs> 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 they didn't, didn't, which I thought, well, well, you was, also take the agency in, in in that one it's like it's like who did it i did yeah. i it's almost an accomplishment the way that you it was an accomplishment got, <laughs> yeah no it took yeah. took a while it was a smaller it, accomplishment than giving birth the was right bearing the child yeah it's a, yeah. It's a minor accomplishment i yeah. got it is just, it's just funny to center the, the pregnancy on yourself in that way I, but I, I impregnated her. I am well. Impregnated has a has a medicinal quality to it. Like a, I, so so. But the the question was uh, the, the the this different the difference between faithfulness and loyalty. In because so so this is yeah no not we're not we're done with semination insemination but no this this question of marriage about like faithfulness and loyalty. And I think like there was a dumb. There was a dumb uh, question uh, uh, floating around popular discourse, you know, like popular, like boring married people discourse a few years ago about like, would you rather your spouse had a had an emotional affair or a right. sexual yeah, affair? I, people were talking about that. Which always seems like a it just seems like a weird question, partly because it's like the emotional affair is so strangely defined. Right. And you also feel like, well, you like you effectively you have like a like, friend. Right. Like, like would, a good would be, friend would, that would it you be worse if she had a yeah. friend or if she like yeah. went around giving dudes blowjobs? Like, right. It seems, <laughs> it seems weird. But I think I think the, the, the Heather Haverleski book, which neither of us has read or, or imagine we'll read, but got got a, a sufficiently um, uh, in we're, we're we're sufficiently informed for our own uh, uh, egos to to pass judgment on based on her excerpt and Walter Kern's review. Uh, that actually gave me a better um, a better analog for this question, which is not a question about emotions or sex, but a question about loyalty versus faithfulness. And so here's my question for you. Well, define them for me. 
Well, I, I have a hard... So faithfulness, I think, is more to do with the letter of the law. I think it's less so much less less about sexuality than about obedience to adherence to vows. And okay. loyalty is something different that I don't know if I can define quickly. But but I can offer an example. Okay. Okay, so the example I'd is love this. To hear it. Would you rather your wife conduct a an intense but discreet five-year-long sexual affair? The other one. I want the other one. You think you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, or spend five years writing and then ultimately publishing Heather Haverleski's book. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, it's an easy, it's an easy, I take the sexual affair every time. Uh, Not that I, I want or or approve that. But, okay, yeah. so in in this in this case, if you want to like, you obviously want her to write the book and not have the affair, because you writers do crazy stuff all the time. And if my wife wrote this book about me, I would say, yeah, look at her. I'm so proud. She got this book contract and it's excerpted in the Times. And like, isn't isn't she funny? And and like maybe we would go to couples therapy and I would yell okay. and scream and start sure. crying well, about sure. it. Well, sure, but then like but control I... control for for like success. Like like say like the 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 affair having wife like writes an unrelated novel that's equally successful. Like control for that element of it. No, no, no. I, I don't mean therefore I can take her money and spend it on on goods for myself. Sure, I know, but she, also but there's also like a you're happy but, for her to be successful and that like but I'm saying no, control for. No, but that. I mean I mean there's plausible deniability where like. Anything I write, if someone got offended by it, I would be like, "Come on! Like I, I'm writing, I'm writing here. Like you know, you that's not fiction. me. That's like writing. You write fiction. I write nonfiction. I don't believe my nonfiction to be true, but I I, I write you it. You don't write nonfiction about your wife, do you? No, and I wouldn't none, do that. That'd be terrible. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I think that because, because here, here's here's loyalty. There. Well, here's and here's that. part of what clarified this for me. Reading Heather Haverleski, and because I think like my my like brief summary of Walter Kern's review was Heather Haverleski is an excellent writer and a terrible thinker, and, and I think a terrible I think, thinker or a terrible person. Uh, no, I think he he sort of he keeps it to thinker. He sort of says like he implies the person like also like who would want to be married to her? She's so awful to her husband. But he, what he really what he really takes her to task for is is drawing uh, improper conclusions from dubious premises. Right. So I think like yes. that's that's really his his primary argument. She she said that he, what he did was he made a book about a woman's experience all about a man's feelings in a misogynistic way. That's what she she said he did. I think that's not accurate, but also sort of slightly beside the point here, whether it's accurate or not. So but what I realized reading it is that she is a, she is a good writer. And as you said, like there's some real wit and. Uh, yes. brilliance to some of these images. What I realized is that if I were reading exactly, and this comes back a little bit to our to our conversation about that that nine eleven piece. If I were reading this in a novel, I would just enjoy it. I would just right. say, of course, people feel this way sometimes, and this right. is a really clever and fun articulation of this feeling. And right. like, and it and it's in a way like it's very public, but of course it's fictional, so it's private because it's not like she's doing it to her husband. But I think. That it is nonfiction, or that it, it purports to be nonfiction or memoir, makes me makes makes me squirm. And I think it has well, to do with that. What if you just put it in the in the um? What what if you just categorize it as shtick? 
Like, isn't there like a if she were doing of, it at a party? Like, if it were routine at a party? E- exactly. And like, I if if at if at a party, um, my wife were regaling, you know, six of our friends. I don't know if we have six friends anymore, mm-hmm. but like six of our friends with like, oh, you'll never guess what Brian did again. Right. He is the worst. Like, he was telling all of his students about this, and he is so full of himself that he ended up talking. And he thought people cared, but really nobody was laughing. And really, when they were laughing, they were laughing about how how fat he is and how short and dumb and infertile and like, you know, and she, she just like sort of said a bunch of like superficial mean stuff about me. Um, Yeah. I would rather her do that than, I mean, especially if like everyone's laughing. Publish a memoir with all the same material. No, I would also prefer that. Cheat on me. No. I, oh, oh yeah, the shtick at a party. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, I think shtick at a party. But 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 I'm saying shtick at a party and published shtick is is way closer to each other than you, you might be giving credit for. So I, you say that you would prefer your wife have the affair than yeah. to do what Heather Havrileski does, and I definitely would not. Yeah, because because I could I could file that away as shtick as like performance. You know, she she knows what will get what response from the reader in what way, what version of herself to put before people. And I know that I'm still the one that she goes to sleep next to every night and that she yeah. is raising kids with. And like, no, I don't like it about her, but there are a lot of things she doesn't like about me. And like, so life goes on. Whereas a, a clandestine sexual affair for five years, I, I think that that would be indicative of an emotional break as well as a physical break and everything yeah, else. Yeah, no, they're, they're both bad. They're not, it's a choice between two. But it's to me, a dilemma, it's an easy right? choice. I, yeah, I think at the party where your wife was doing the shtick about, partly like it's also, I think it would be a little bit uh, arresting because your wife, who is charming and brilliant and funny and delightful, is not a very shticky person in my experience. And so it no, would no, be a, it would be an unusual performance for her. It would be startling. Right, but, but now yeah. we're, we're going down this path. It right. would also sure, be sure, unusual sure, sure. for her to have this five-year affair or right. publish yeah. But, but I think what, what, I, would, like, what I would do at that party is, th- is what Dave Chappelle makes fun of the white people in his audiences for doing, which is to go check with the black people before they laugh. And I would be watching you like a hawk and like sweating as I laughed the whole time. So I think, I think again, it's a question of like, it, it does it feel like this is a gen? Cause I feel like I've certainly like known married couples where like part of their whole rapport with each other and the world is this sort of silly mutual abuse. And, and that is, right. I mean, that, that that's a little bit of a like the, different like thing. Women be shopping, you know, it's sure. like the, the, the gender, um, discrepancy which also makes me crazy and which i don't really like but, um, but this that's the thing is like i'll say but like doesn't this fit into that isn't that what mm, heather's doing here? i think some of I it think, like she, she's making specific the general where it's like you know what's gross like old men with their sneezes and because like i blow my nose really loudly i don't it's just how i've yeah. always blown my nose i don't know how to blow my nose quietly revolting and i could i yeah. could understand why somebody would be uh taken aback by that i could even understand why somebody who loved me would be taken aback by that i think i think this would be funny in a novel but i actually don't think it would be funny as stand-up it's sort of and, sad as stand-up well st- i mean you could do it i think part of the key with stand-up and you see this with like even like ranty comics like even bill burr who does a lot of rants about how other people are awful part of how that works is that implicit in everything he says and sometimes explicit is that he also is a ridiculous asshole and like part of his finding this irritating is that he is a ridiculous asshole. And here, 
it, maybe that's that would be there in a in a verbal performance of it, an oral performance of it, but it's certainly not there in the writing. It feels a little bit like it starts as a as a you know uh, you know men are crazy kind of thing, but it, it it has a momentum in it and it's relentless in a way that feels like if it were a transcription of an internal monologue in a novel, I would laugh and think, of course, because this is the kind of crazy thoughts people have, but. In a performance, it, it's so unmitigated that I think it would it actually would not be entertaining. So a different hypothetical, would mm. you would it be worse for you to have access to your wife's diary where she wrote all of these things about you or have her publish all of these things about you in the New York Times? When I have access to... The diary is it like the Ludovico treatment where I have to read the diary? Sure, if you don't read the diary, the hypothetical makes no sense. Well, but how like, would you even know what was in the diary? I'm asking, would you rather read the diary like this or have it be published? And you're like, what if I don't read the diary? Well, no, well, but yeah, I'm saying sure, like, if I knew she had a diary where she wrote all these things down, I would definitely not want to read it. The question is, would <laughs> you I prefer to, to have to to be certain that forget diary? If you had a uh, uh, telescope into her brain because that's mm. the way telescopes work right like yeah. would you prefer to know that your wife is thinking all of this about you or would you prefer to mm. have her publish it because me i would prefer to have my wife publish it because if it's published i could see it as shtick and like professional right. goals achievement and all that but if i really thought that my wife was judging me in all of these ways and truly found me repulsive and truly wanted me not to be around yeah, her all this yeah. time that to me would be heartbreaking and and and, and terrible really like difficult for me to overcome in a way right. that if she published it in the way that heather does i would be able to dismiss it as it's her job it's what she's doing she's doing shtick yeah it feels like there's a little bit of an epistemological problem here because like like whatever way you like it's getting to where like the way you discover it reveals its relative truth right like because well, right, you you're assuming that this is book. true i like i that that's but but I, I don't i don't think it's epistemological i think it's just the question of how we read nonfiction. i read nonfiction assuming it's all lies sure and I think you give a little bit more credence to nonfiction. Well, no, it's not necessarily that I give more credence to because I don't even think necessarily that Heather Haverleski thinks all these things of her husband quite in the way she articulates them. But I do think it's profoundly disloyal. And that makes me cringe. I think that's I agree like with that. Yeah. So like that's that's really it's like it's so it's so crummy I can't enjoy it. Whereas in a novel it wouldn't be disloyal because it would be some character's thoughts. Yes. I, I agree with that, but it also wouldn't be as exciting to her readers because her demonstrating how crappy a person she is and how weak her husband is in all these ways is thrilling, I think, to a certain type of reader where there's no way this is getting excerpted as, as fiction. No, of course, of course. Times yeah, yeah. or anywhere else, yeah. whereas the idea of this woman just saying like, look at my life, I am going to give you a quote unquote honest right. account in a way that you're all too scared to to give yourself or other people. It's it's brave of her, you know, right. in a way that fictionalized it wouldn't be. 
Though, I mean, though, even an example, like I think the cat person thing, it's like the, the cat person would not have been such a sensation if it were not essentially read as nonfiction. Let me put it this way. If it were understood to be a work of imagination, like an accurate work of mere imagination, I think it would like, have been thought of less. People would like have been if it less were written by you. If that story were written, <laughs> sure, were written sure, by you, sure, it would not yeah. be... Yeah, it for, would not be for a variety of reasons, but yeah. Or, or no, what, right, was that, yeah. what was that book by the, the novel by a, a woman who had an affair with Philip Roth and then wrote about it? Oh, in the asymmetry. Novel. asymmetry. Exactly, yeah. asymmetry. It has that same sort of yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. fiction, it, like taking advantage of the tools of fiction while right. being thrilling because it is a true story. Yes, though while I found asymmetry's second half to be impeccable and horribly boring, I, I found its first half to be immeasurably more charming than Cat Person, which I also thought was a, was a fine short story. Yes. All right. Well, thank you, as always. Uh, for this was interesting. Speaking. I mean, this was like a sort of quieter, more contemplative, like, I think, fascinating hour and a half discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will, we will check back in when we have both been served with divorce papers. 